This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the C.F. Fowler Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Whiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate in divergent ideas for our future. The field of machine learning has diverse uses, and its implementation varies from assisting a program to being the basis of entire products. So while it is difficult to make broad statements about what AI is for and where it is going, there is an interesting question at the basis of this podcast. We have discussed whether AI could be used in creative ways, and we've found some great examples, but should our resources be directed toward creative AIs? Or should we focus on the logical and reliable implementations of AI? On this episode, the Art Intelligence Agency brings you Agent David Olney, an existential philosopher and blind university lecturer from Adelaide. David brings his unique perspective back to the podcast to discuss how AI has affected his life and what he hopes will come of this technology in the future. While this disrupts the podcast narrative where we assess creative use of AI, it is a divergent perspective on the industry as a whole. I'm joined today by Agent David Olney. Thank you for joining us at the Art Intelligence Agency. Ooh, I'm confused. <laughs> I'm now an agent and I'm at an agency. Yeah. I always thought that would involve being in a bunker. We're not in a bunker. No, we're not, no. There's windows, there's a pot plant. <laughs> it's a better grade of it, agency. It's bunker-esque. <laughs> it, it's got a uh, blanket on the table. True, yeah, it's homely. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I brought you in today because you're an interesting case, I think, David. One, you actually have a significant philosophical background and at least have thought about some of the things that we like to talk about on the podcast. But two, you're an interesting use case, uh, I guess, for some programmers out there or or people who are interested in this kind of uh, machine learning space because there are uh, applications that that apply to you that maybe doesn't apply to everyone else. And we've discussed that previously on, on seeing AI. And I guess I'll start by asking how that affects your life. In a sense, having access to the apps and how then to use them. Where would you like to start in that sense? Mm, access to the apps. I'll jump back a step before because maybe that really helps to understand technology. Sure. So when I got my iPhone 5 in 2012 running voiceover, so suddenly I've got a screen reader running on a handheld device and a camera. Mm-hmm. And even in 2012, we've already got the beginning of optical character recognition apps. You're already starting to be able to do OCR. You know, take a photo of a doc, you know, printed document mm-hmm. and extract the information. So a bit like laptops and screen reading software in the late 90s, you begin with the simplest form of image interpretation. That bunch of dots looks like an A. That bunch of dots looks like a C. That bunch of dots looks like an E. Then there's a space. So screen reader says ace. Mm. So interpretation starts at a really basic level when you put together the combination of a blind person, a piece of technology and software to interpret the world. So you actually start by interpreting the simplest of things, something that in itself is already a representation Mm. You you capture words because at that point, capturing the world is just not going to happen. 
Whereas by 2016, we have the emergence of apps like Seeing AI from Microsoft, which listeners, you know, you've already heard a bit about. And, you know, download the app, play with it. it it's really interesting for sighted people to understand what an iPhone can do for blind people. Mm. But initially, I think a lot of people expected a great deal out of what the early versions of apps like Seeing AI could do, mainly because they wanted it to be amazing. Whereas if they thought back to, say, 2012 with OCR, it was pretty clunky. So why was photo description going to be anything but clunky? Mm -hmm. You end up in a world when you first get these apps where it's trying to interpret a photograph from the camera on the device. At that point, it's sending it away to a server farm somewhere. So the amount of computing is huge. And the more often than not, it's either horribly wrong or makes you laugh because it's so random and weird. <laughs> and then because it's not very helpful, you go, well, I'm going to take photos anyway because it's fun seeing what it thinks it sees. Mm. And it's fun trying to work out if it could give me a bit more data, how would I interpret what it has interpreted. So you end up with that double-layered thing of the machine is doing some level of interpretation with the person on top. Mm. Then we get to sort of an interesting next step in these apps. They're still doing a terrible job at describing scenes. They're getting better at optical character recognition, but you're getting to the point where you can train it to recognise a thing. You can take photos from multiple angles of the same thing and give it a name. Mm. So suddenly you can use the app to search for your keys and they're labelled David's keys because you've taken photos from all these different angles and if you put it down somewhere in the apartment, you can walk around scanning and seeing AI will go, David's keys. So this is an interesting point where the two kinds of interpretation then come together. Mm. You've decided what to photograph and given it a name but it can then spot it from different angles in different light conditions on different backgrounds because you've taken enough photos for it to build a good you know, representation of it. Mm. So you're beginning to get the combination of you and the machine working together rather than having to interpret something where you really don't know what the machine did with it. And I would have to assume that phase of people taking photos of their things and labelling them must have been very important for training the machine learning. Mm. That if 100 people did their keys like I did and all those versions of keys went back into the system where blind people had specifically labelled these as keys, that might have had more continuity than just random photos from the universe of keys. Because one thing we could say is no blind person's going to have car keys on their key ring chain. No, no one's probably yeah. going to have a flashlight. Yeah. So suddenly, keys are just keys. No car keys, no flashlight. So there we get a degree of nuance coming into the combination of the human and the machine. Mm. Now, scene description in an app like Seeing AI will often get the constituent parts of a scene quite good, but you know, doesn't even hazard a guess at the context. So it might say, you know, uh, you know person bare feet uh, laying on a couch or a bed because it doesn't know. All it knows is that I've kind of been laying on the couch listening to a book and have taken a photo pointing in the general direction of towards my feet just to see what it does with, you know, feet with no socks on mm. laying on the couch. It sort of gets there. But if I didn't know the context I was in, 
what use is that bit of information? So consistently, we've got an interpretation question in terms of these apps like Seeing AI, mm. where the human is still bringing the context to the image. So if the human is somewhere really difficult, like imagine you've walked into a building and there's like a plastic barrier up to waist height and it stopped you dead with your cane. Well, you know that beyond that must be a corridor because before it was a corridor. Mm. But what's in the corridor, that's when taking the picture of what's down the corridor, maybe it tells you uneven surface or something to go, oh, they've ripped the floor up. Yeah. Or darkness or maybe it does find a sign Mm. with something like, you know, wet floor. Mm-hmm. But once again, we're out of the context where I've taken a photo of something I know about into a context where it needs to do more. And that's where the app is getting better every update. But it's going from zero to now being a solid two out of ten. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, but am I going to bet my safety on it? No. You know, yeah. There's no way I'm going to think of sneaking around that barrier just on the basis of what the app sees at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, okay, why am I in this building? Well, I was going to go see someone in this building. Well, that's the point where because of that barrier and taking the photo, I'm going to call that person and go, hey, I'm down the end of the corridor on the way to the elevators or on your floor and there's a barrier and I can't make any sense of the other side. Come get me. Mm. So it becomes more a point that you're trying to help the app learn than you really think it's going to help in that situation. And I'd say we're getting closer and closer to a point where the app may actually help, but I don't feel I'm at the point where I would trust it in that way yet. Yeah. It's interesting because it's a use case or or at least a design philosophy of reliability where, you know, on the podcast we've so far kind of been discussing AI being surprising, it being able to do things that we don't want it to. And it's interesting because you find the these apps kind of fun and you wouldn't bet your life on them. And I kind of wonder whether there's an element of kind of discovery or kind of interest in when it gets it wrong. Is that... Yes, is that act- it is it- discovery to go, what can it do and is it getting better? See, sure. the reason why there's multiple apps like Seeing AI that have gone the way of the dodo and the dinosaurs <laughs> over the last four years is because initially they were quite good. Yeah. Like there was an amazing one for a little while called Identify. A 16-year-old kid literally wrote it in year 11. Wow. And Google was so impressed when he came and did like a little internship at Google. They let him finish all the coding and run it off a Google server farm. Wow. But again, they saw no commercial use case. And Google hasn't got the commitment to accessibility of Apple or Microsoft, I don't believe. No. You know, the fact that one week Google Docs works, the next week it's total garbage. And it's like that with most Google products. Yeah. So I don't doubt that Google probably commercialized what he designed, but not to help, you know, disabled people. Mm. They found some use for spotting what was in photos. I don't know, to batch photos or work out what things on websites should be flagged as potentially inappropriate or some sort of commercial use that made them money. But I think that was their principal driver. Even, you know, um, so they have a commitment to AI publicly, I think, that not many of the other tech companies match. Mm. But it's in spaces that appeal to a much larger audience. Yeah, they're in general use land. Yeah. Whereas Apple really has committed to accessibility being baked into everything. 100%. And Microsoft, 
has gone from really pre-seeing AI. The screen reader they used to build into Windows 10 was a joke. <laughs> you, know, you turn the narrator on when any other screen reader crashed just to get your screen reader back. And the minute your screen reader was back, you killed narrator because it was so bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, it's still not marvellous, but it's so much better than it was. But because of, you know, Sakib and seeing AI, mm. Microsoft are now a genuine contender in taking accessibility really seriously. And I think the fact that Apple and Microsoft are now both taking it seriously means that healthy thing of wanting to compete between accessibility teams mm. will hopefully kick in. Hopefully. And mm. at the moment, it's not necessarily that, you know, Certain channels on seeing AI are immediately very useful. So the one for immediately looking for printed text and reading it, mm. that's immediately useful. That's you know reading the sign on someone's door. That's working out what number a room is. All those kind of things that are just really important. That channel might be 50% of the use case. The mm. simplest thing that is really like real-time OCR. Yeah. And yet on the other end... I think this is a very clever thing. These apps have all started going down the same path of different channels. Like the app I actually am willing to pay for is a European app called Envision. Mm-hmm. It has less channels than seeing AI and all of its channels are really focused on, they try things out, but they're only in demo mode until they're really good and then they're baked into one of the channels. Yep. So the point with Envision is if it's if it's built into Envision, it's probably already working enough where it's about adding value to your day rather than just this is novel or interesting. Mm. We're seeing AI is much more, you know, any meeny, miny, mo on a given month. Mm. The, the, you know, the immediate text channel is always going to be useful, but the LiDAR channel at the moment is far more experimental than useful. Yeah. I can see that changing very quickly. Yeah. Now, Envision don't have a LiDAR channel yet, but mm. I can't imagine it will be long and when theirs comes out, I would assume they won't release it until it's immediately useful. So you get different approaches to what these apps should primarily be. Yeah. Seeing AI was largely a test case that got better. Envision was useful from day one because it was a commercial product that you had to be willing to subscribe to. Mm. Fundamentally, though, the idea of this interpretation is is kind of, as we've mentioned, tuned towards high reliability, but you you it's also relying on users that aren't framing things optimally aren't precisely and you just touched on something really huge by saying not framing things in an optimal visual way Mm. so part of the trick here is with the combination of lidar an amazing camera that can work in low light Mm. the amount of visual data is probably more than a human eye would get yeah but how do you present that in a way how do you interpret that so it's useful for the sighted person that lost their sight yeah what things in that frame are worth mentioning? Because you could you could talk endlessly about any of the specific objects or yep. even the shadows or anything within that photo. There would be a lot to comment on. So I think it's going to get to the point where there's going to be different levels of description. Mm. So for the blind person who's forever being blind, they just need to know what things are in the photo and what distance from each other. Mm. Because they've never seen those things, so if they just know they're there, that's already a big win. Yeah. Whereas for the person who had sight previously, they probably are thinking, this thing is giving me an idea of what that looks like. Mm. Whereas, again, I had a little bit of sight, I saw colours, I could read with big print, but all I really want to know in a scene is what's in it. Yeah. I'll build the image, 
but I've talked to other blind people and read blog posts where they really want a detailed description of what the image means. Yeah. And sometimes they want it for just that thing of novelty to see if the app can do it. But sometimes they don't want another case of being responsible for working out what the world means with insufficient data. Yeah. They want someone to solve the problem for them. Yeah. And I don't think necessarily that everyone always understands what you're asking for when you're asking an app that more and more often now is doing the number crunching on board. Mm. It's really not at the level of telling me what it means. No. And I almost don't want it to try on my phone. Right. I'd have that as a shits and giggles channel. Yeah. But I don't want it to be part of a serious bit that works. Yeah. Well, it's interesting though, you know, it kind of raises philosophical questions which i understand is your background because we're consulting technology and we're, we're using kind of i guess digits right Di- mm. digital the digital to perform our to uh, perform in the biological yeah, yeah sure uh what's the phrase i'm looking for combinatorial ontology yeah in a sense that's part that's a, that's a really good way to put it together you know for your listeners i'll, I'll give a quick rundown from an existential point of view agreeing on what's in the world and what it means the only way you can do it is to sit down with someone and work out, well, do we agree all these things are here? And a, a brilliant philosopher, a guy called Dale Jaquette, came up with a model called combinatorial ontology. And it's that even though Tim can see everything here in the studio, most things in here I can feel. Mm. So we can agree the table's here. We can agree there's a blanket on the table. We can agree there's four mics. Four mics stands for headphones. We can agree there's a spaghetti junction of cables and the mixing desk. Now, because I trust him, if he tells me what colour any of that stuff is, I've got no reason to doubt him. Yeah. But the colour is just a novel bit of information to me. The fact that I think there's four, but Tim can confirm it, that's how we build this shared world. Mm. So the app and the human really are doing a weird kind of combinatorial ontology. The app can have a go at what's there, but the human is the one that provides the context. Mm. So for me, I want the app to be able to tell me what's there accurately enough that I know what pieces are in frame. Yeah. I'll do the judgment and then I'll get a sighted person in the mix and go, hang on, it's telling me there's a this, this and a this. They don't sound like they would normally go together. And then Tim could explain, well, why they're near each other. It's actually a random shelf where people put three things together because they fit in the shelf. Yeah. There is no logic. And that's where it's the strange combination of the technology can do so much the person doing the interpreting is limited by how much sight did they once have? How much sight do they have now? Mm. Do they just want to know what's there or do they want to know what it means? Yeah. How important to them is it to have a complete view or are they happy to you know, go through life essentially having a minimum viable product of what's in front of them? If I know there's nothing on the floor that's going to kill me and nothing at head height that's going to cut my face open, I'm pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My minimum viable product is pretty minimal. Environment's not going to hurt me. Let's get on with it. At yeah. the end of the day, there might be a pizza. So, <laughs> yeah. so let's move closer to the pizza. It's it's funny. We're kind of, it, in some ways, it creates a little bit of tension for uh, something that we've been exploring on the podcast, which is you know whether AI can be creative on its own and whether that is um, credible. It, 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 we, we often come to the conclusion that AI augments our creative processes but it is is kind of incredible let's say <clears throat> but on by itself on its own when it does things by itself so 
this creates a little bit of tension because you've raised the point that we that at least some use cases we want things to be as reliable as possible so that mm. that that the human can do all of the mm. kind of creative interpretive process themselves so it it reverses that order of of you know the kind of information supply and I'd say something, you know, to to follow what I took from the thread, even if your thread's incomplete. Sure. And that is that there's two lots of machine learning development going on. Right. How to get what's there mm. and how to create something. Yeah. And by doing both, can we more, be more deliberate about doing both and have a better idea what happens when they're combined? Yeah. So it's a bit like, you know, if you train just for one physical discipline, like if you're just a sprinter, you only develop to do that. If yeah. you're a pentathlete, you're not as good a sprinter, but yeah. you can do lots of other things too. And I'm most interested from my perspective in machine learning leading to a flexible tool that can tell me what's there, but in another channel, have a guess at maybe what it means. Well, an interesting thing about it being reliable is that all of the hardware is the same. You know, part of the kind of human creative endeavor is due to the fact that each of us have an individual brain chemistry and individual outlook, I suppose, on the world. And that kind of puts a combinatorial ontology into question sometimes. You know, we might disagree on exactly... myself and, and another sided person might disagree exactly on whether um, a color is the same because mm. he, he or she may be colorblind. Mm. Um, we, David and I may disagree on what something tastes like. Things- and they're the points of interest where you yeah. go, this is the friction and how the friction is expressed, how it's dealt with tells us really how capable is machine learning. Yeah. What does it do when it gets friction? Yeah. Because to be creative in a sense can be a constant friction between you want to represent something, but you're not sure the best way to represent what you're feeling. Yeah. Well, it doesn't have any feeling. So. Precisely. But so for a human, you a situation makes you feel something and you want to capture that situation in a form of art and convey your feeling. Mm. Well, what does the AI want to do? Mm. It doesn't feel, so what's it conveying? Well, it can do randomness mm. and it can, it can do surprising things, but it can't, it mm. can't care enough to... But also... That is a strength of it, and it is also a, a, um, a kind of limitation. Its strength is, in a sense, to stimulate you to see the world differently because it made something different. And in some ways, not necessarily reliably, but it can stimulate with some kind of consistency in the sense that every every time that you pick up some kind of machine learning tool, you might not be able to predict what it will produce for you or, or how it will augment your thinking but you can rely on the fact that all of the basis all of the inputs are the same all of the hardware is the same mm. all of the, the software code is changed the same. Mm. Yeah, it, what it, it's it's changed from experience what mm. it thinks it's going to do with more data so you know there's a kind of incremental iteration going on mm-hmm. of learn more do different yeah so in that process of learn more, do different, that's where it gets very interesting. That over time, well, what's it done to itself? You know, how has it changed in how it perceives things? So, and what can we do with the new le- findings? Mm. Mm. So if the AI has been busy looking at images and goes back and goes, ah, you know, keys with a flashlight, no car keys. 
Mm. That to me, that's a, a useful thing for it to learn on its own. Mm-hmm. That that's not my normal house keys. If it's got a flashlight, that's that's a different person. But if it could acknowledge, ah, oh, nothing on there looks like a car key. Well, that that would be a useful thing to know. Yeah, because that's something that makes keys, you know, quite sort of consistent for adult sighted people in Australia versus children and disabled people. Yeah, 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 hundred <laughs> yeah, percent. It's an interesting point of difference. So if it could work out on its own that seeing what it knows as a car key or not seeing one is worth saying, that seeing a flashlight or not is worth saying, yeah, that seeing a little multi-tool on there or not is worth saying. So if they're the kind of interpretive things it could add, that to me is very interesting because it is to some degree interpretive. Yeah. But it, it keeps showing its learning to discern more. See, I, I really want AI to be boring and useful. Yes. But if we look at the amount of information that, mm. say, my iPhone 12 Pro can take between the different lenses and the LiDAR simultaneously, mm-hmm. the AI learning how to strip that down to what's useful, like the human brain strips down what the eye sees to what it needs, because interpreting every bit of visual data would just be crushing for even our brains. It's too much data. Yeah. That wonderful example, that little YouTube video where you get told, count how many times the basketball is passed, count how many times the basketball is passed, and a gorilla walks through the middle of the and people don't see the gorilla Yeah, because they're, they're focusing on what they've been told to focus on. Yeah. So understanding how the AI is learning to be more efficient. How do we get from the point of everything had to go to the server farm to the analysis is being done on board? To some extent, it's that the chip is so much better on the device. Mm. But it's not just that. It must be the software's ability to strip the image back to what's likely to be useful more quickly and be working with less data more quickly. Yeah. So there to me is... Maybe that's where it's a bit of a combination of reliability and a bit of creativity because we know reliably it needs to strip back from however many megapixels to something it can crunch effectively. Yeah. But how it does it, that was kind of evolutionary or creative by Mm. just trial and error and more and more. Yes. So maybe in the reliable, we kind of have proof of seeing the creative, did this make it better or worse? Yes. Yeah, not just purely an analytic process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there might be a link in there that I just don't understand as not ever having had enough sight to really understand how amazing the original photo is. Yes. Yeah. Even as a little kid with the most sight I ever had, I could go car, fire truck, <laughs> you know, table, chair, not mega detail. Mm. So I don't look for mega details. But when you describe to me occasionally playing a computer game, the yeah. richness of the imagery, yeah, you're you're finding details and details and details and because it's been created they all had to be put in Mm. and we've talked about it before in soundscapes in movies and soundtracks because every sound is put in it's actually more meaningful sound than is normally in the world because the world is full of all the crappy sounds you don't want to hear yeah movies are full of sounds that are normally there for a reason Mm. to add something to the experience and they're usually incredibly complex Mm. yes so in terms of how they're how they're um, constructed, not necessarily how they end up sounding. Yeah. Mm. So the machine learning for an image is going world's too big. Strip it back to something useful to interpret. Yeah. That's both very creative, and becoming more reliable. So there's the interesting conjunction, and I've not ever really thought of it that way before today. Well, it's it's an interesting place to 
come to. And uh, I just want to open up the floor for you to let our listeners know uh, what kind of work that you're up to at the moment or where they can uh, listen to you further or, or find out more of your work. Thanks for that. Everyone, probably you know, for listeners of this podcast, I just wrote a blog post this week on what accessible technology can do for blind people, how amazing it can be and what makes it amazing. So if you go off to my website, davidolney.com.au, you can find all my blog posts. I don't write about technology often, but I will write about it when amazing breakthroughs happen because they have such a big impact on what I can do and things I think about. Mm. I also you know, train people to think more effectively. I train people to do all sorts of interesting things. I provide one-on-one coaching to people to help them do risk management and to plan large projects. I, I essentially like to think about helping people think more effectively. Which is an interesting case for, I had imagine, some of our listeners who are just finding out exactly the the kind of gaps that are out there in the AI universe. What else can we invent next? And you know, it might not be it might not be something that imitates sight. It might be some other kind of uh, human experience that we just haven't put into code yet. I'm sure that there are plenty of opportunities for that. So, well, I wonder if in the combination of getting machine learning to do more useful things with image recognition for blind people mm. is actually the ground where maybe the creative and the reliable can be tested yeah. every photo, every mm. day. Mm. It needs to be reliable, but just creative enough to add some context. It's good. It's a good way to remove the human bias in some sense from your testing. Yeah, because yeah. if the blind person finds it interesting or useful, that tells you a lot. And whether it was interesting or useful tells you an awful lot. Yeah. And on good days, it's both interesting and useful. Thank you for joining us at the Art Intelligence Agency, Agent David Olney. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, listeners. If you want to hear more from David Olney, you can follow his work at davidolney.com.au. Link in the episode description. David is an experienced podcaster and has worked on fascinating projects across many fields. So if you're a fan of the show, you'll enjoy his work too. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things, but for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal.